What's an investor to do when inflation's at a 40-year high? We'll get into that next. Motley Fool Money starts now. Everybody needs money. That's why they call it money. The best things in life are free, but you can give them to the birds and bees. I need From Fool Global Headquarters, this is Motley Fool Money. It's the Motley Fool Money Radio Show. I'm Chris Hill, and I'm joined by Motley Fool Senior Analyst Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. Good to see you both. How you doing, Chris? Hey, Chris. We've got the latest headlines from Wall Street. We'll get an update on housing and real estate from Matt Argusinger. And as always, we got a couple of stocks on our radar. But we begin with the big macro. Inflation hit a 40-year high on Friday as the Consumer Price Index report showed prices rising 8.6% year-over-year. The reaction from investors was swift, with the Dow, NASDAQ, and S&P 500 all falling to end the week down each around 5%. Ron, for consumers, we're seeing higher prices on groceries and gas. What does this mean for investors? Yeah, boy, my screen is filled with red today, uh, Friday. Stocks got slammed on this news, which perhaps shouldn't be too surprising. A much hotter than expected number. As you said, consumers are definitely feeling the pinch. Fuel oil up over 106% over the past year. And everyday foods like cereal, eggs, uh, double-digit percentage increases. Housing costs skyrocketed. Make matters worse, we've got real wages declining 0.6% from April, declining 3% on a 12-month basis. So, for, as you said, for sure, uh, consumers are feeling it. On the investing side, markets widely expect the Fed to keep raising rates, interest rates, short-term interest rates. They have to, to try to combat that inflation. The Fed will try to engineer what's called a soft landing by raising those rates, bringing inflation down, but not driving us into a significant recession. That is not an easy thing to do. Many economists, market strategists already predicting a recession. JP Morgan's Jamie Dimon said we should brace for an economic hurricane. So for regular long-term investors like us, I think you can look at your portfolio to make sure you're happy with your allocations. More speculative or weaker companies can maybe sold off to raise a bit of cash. But for the most part, I think we stick with the mantra of not trying to time the market. And you can even buy into the market when stocks are lower. But I think we do have to understand that times could be tough for a while. So make sure you don't have cash in the stock market that you'll need over the next three years. All right, let's get to some of the companies making headlines this week. Earlier in the week, DocuSign announced an expanded partnership with Microsoft. But after the closing bell on Thursday, DocuSign's first quarter results were worse than Wall Street was expecting, and shares on Friday fell 25%. Emily, is it really that bad? Well, DocuSign shareholders are already intimately familiar with the pain that Ron was talking about. It's been happening to them for a long time now, and I am, by the way, included in that group. I will say, though, maybe this is a controversial opinion, this quarter really wasn't that bad for DocuSign. Earnings did miss expectations. They only earned an adjusted $0.38 cents per share instead of the $0.46 cents expected, but revenue beat expectations, rising 25% year over year. And revenue was the big question mark for DocuSign. People were concerned about the top line slowing down as a result of the pandemic waning and competition in the e-signature business heating up. But the unexpected costs that have weighed on the bottom line were, again, surprising to the market in this most recent quarter, which is why I think we're 
we're seeing the stock pull back as much as it is. I will also say, though, I say the quarter is not bad. My concerns with DocuSign are, are much longer term in nature, which is around their billings. Their billings guidance, despite being decent for the next quarter, is showing a significant slowdown headed into the next year. And that translates directly into top line growth. So if we're getting into, you know, single digit numbers here for revenue growth in DocuSign, this stock may still have further to fall. I mentioned the expanded partnership with Microsoft that was announced earlier in the week. Do you think there's a chance that could be a prelude to an acquisition by Microsoft? Like you, I'm a DocuSign shareholder. I'm not looking to sell my shares, and I'm not looking necessarily for the company to be bought. But it wouldn't be the first time in the company's history that Microsoft partnered up with someone just so they could get a closer look and eventually buy them somewhere down the line. Well, I do think Microsoft would be getting what is a dominant player in the e-signatures business, but more importantly, a growing player in the contract lifecycle management business for a pretty attractive price, if that's where they're headed with this. I will say, though, I think maybe it's selling DocuSign a little short here, and regulators may have concerns with the dominating presence that DocuSign does have in e-signatures as a potential regulatory concern. Target's latest quarterly report was something of a disaster, but CEO Brian Cornell and his team are not sitting still. This week, Target announced it was going to clear out inventory by offering discounts, and the company also announced it is increasing its quarterly dividend 20%. Ron, i got to say, I like the boldness that they are showing here. I completely agree here, Chris. The the stock is down 42% from its 52-week high, and times are tough, and mistakes were made, especially on the merchandising side here, but I really like what CEO Brian Cornell is doing. Just for context, a couple weeks ago, Target explained that it had a merchandise problem. It had overordered big, bulky home goods like patio furniture, TVs, kitchen appliances. Those are costly to ship. They take up a lot of room in shipping containers. They also take up a lot of room in costly warehouses. Inventory was up 43%. The company issued weak guidance, and the stock got whacked. Appropriately so, but perhaps maybe it was overdone a bit there. Earlier this week, they warned further. They warned further of a more severe profit drop than they originally thought, and they would have to cancel orders with vendors and offer discounts to clear out unwanted goods. Ripping off the band-aid, getting this done so it doesn't continue to impact the back half of the year. They now expect operating margins of just two percent in the second quarter. So the second quarter is going to be a mess. We just have to understand that. The company did try to mitigate some of the damage of this news, also sent a strong signal to the markets, as you mentioned, announcing a 20% increase in the dividend. That yield is now 2.8%. Shares are only trading at 16 times forward earnings. I'm a target shareholder. I will likely look to add to my position. I like what they're doing. And let's face it, if you need some patio furniture or a new TV, it sounds like the sales are happening at Absolutely. Target near you. Obviously, a lot of people have been in the market for those products for the last year and a half, and perhaps now not so much. The struggles continue at Stitch Fix. The company announced it is laying off 4% of its employees. They cut their guidance and posted a bigger loss in the latest quarter than was expected. Shares of Stitch Fix falling on Friday and hitting a new all-time low, Emily. 
Oh, Stitch Fix and DocuSign. I have all the painful stories today. It's not fun for <laughs> Stitch Fix shareholders either. And similar to DocuSign, this has been going on for a long time now. Uh, since pre-departure of their former CEO and, and founder, Katrina Lake, their net loss of $0.72 cents, uh, per share in the most recent quarter was significantly higher than their $0.18 cent per share lost last year. Revenue did fall 8% to under $500 million. Customers also fell 5%. Stitch Fix's market cap is now below $700 million. And I do think that there is a price at which investors should be interested in this business because it does have a viable business model, but they're realizing it you know, we're just not going to be the future of fashion, and we don't need to have corporate overhead to act as such. So they're in cost-cutting mode right now, laying off, as you mentioned, 4% of their workforce, largely their corporate salaried workforce, trying to cut costs and figure out a streamlined level of efficiency for their business. The silver lining here is that their average revenue per client rose to over $550 per customer. That's driven incrementally by those direct purchases through their freestyle platform. So they clearly have some active, engaged, and loyal customers. They should focus on streamlining operations to become profitable again, and focusing on retaining those high-value customers over the long term. If someone were to come in and make a bid for a business like Stitch Fix, where would you expect them to come in terms of industry? Because I could see the case for a larger company that is already in the retail space, already in the fashion space. Um, But I could see this being an add-on acquisition uh, for a larger tech company that wouldn't necessarily be an obvious candidate. I actually struggle to see any buyer for this business, to be frank. And I, I don't mean that against Stitch Fix in particular, but against the industry that they're in. We saw Nordstrom try to do something very similar with Trunk Club, and Nordstrom was arguably in a good position to do so because they had that premium brand awareness that Stitch Fix never really had. And even they struggled to do it with their loyal customer base. I think ultimately, you know, they need to figure out a direction. Are they? Are they? Are they algorithms? Are they niche stylists? Are they an e-commerce operation? They never had that direction. Until they have that direction, I don't see anyone coming in and buying them. Netflix needs help with an advertising platform, but is buying Roku the answer? We'll discuss that after the break, so stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. can buy me love. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here with Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. Third quarter results for Vail Resorts were better than expected. The resort operator benefited from COVID restrictions being relaxed and more people actually going outside. Emily, skiing season is over. Kind of looks like Vail did pretty well. Uh, who knew there were so many skiers? I, I imagine a lot of investors did, but you know, prior to looking at this report, I did not know how popular it was. And I will say, uh, this is a business that I think has obviously benefited from the lockdowns and the easing of the pandemic, but also executes at a really high level. Revenue rose over 30% year over year in this quarter, largely driven by people returning, like you said, to the ski resorts, but not just typical peak season pass holders, which we saw pick up again this quarter. And we saw them able to raise prices on those season passes as well, showing a bit of pricing power. But they also had off-peak users as well. So they're almost, you could argue, getting in a new type of clientele that's looking to just do anything in this environment and get out a bit more. They also raised guidance as a result of this quarter. Um, And to top it all off, talk about moves in the right direction. They're also raising wages for hourly employees to help with staffing needs. 
So I do have to wonder when I think about the future for Vail Resorts, um, what happens when international travel picks back up? Because we're seeing reports out today that the Biden administration is lifting the requirements for international travelers to come back with a negative COVID test, which some could argue would be an opportunity for people to take vacations, whereas they are taking domestically, maybe moving internationally. Um, I wonder what happens to demand over the, you know, say the midterm in that case. But I will say this is a business that knows how to execute very effectively. And also when we talk about Moats, the idea that any business in any industry has a moat. Um, one way you can have a moat is a high barrier to entry. And when your business is essentially owning mountains, it's like, look, it's it's not like we're building more mountains. So, you know, that's it's a little <laughs> bit of a moat for Vail Resorts, isn't it? <laughs> You could definitely argue that, although I will say, you know, the limiting factor here is demand to be on an icy mountain. And as you may know, that's not exactly my top tier vacation, but for other people, if the icy mountain works for you, then more power to Vail Resorts. I'm with you, Emily. Campbell Soup's third quarter profits rose 18% and the company raised guidance for the full fiscal year. It looks like, among other things, Campbell's is getting their supply chain worked out as well. Yeah, this is a strong report. Shares are only down 10% from their 52-week high, which, unfortunately, that's a pretty big win. Um, that, that They've held up pretty nicely here. As you mentioned, sales were up. The demand for products remains strong. Consumption up 4% compared to the prior year and up 14% on a three-year basis. And as you mentioned, they're improving their supply chain and they've been able to put forth price increases, which help to mitigate gross margin pressure. Gross margins actually increased 90 basis points thanks to those price increases and the, the supply chain productivity. That is not a common thing to see currently in the retail space or the food space. Very interesting. In addition to that, they were able to cut marketing and excelling expenses by 7%. So you take the higher gross margins, the lower operating expenses, that leads you to an operating income increase of 23% or adjusted earnings per share increase of 37%. Pretty good. Raised full year 2022 net sales guidance, but they only reaffirmed their earnings guidance because I think they're being conservative about how inflation could continue to pressure margins. They have a major cost cut initiative in place. They've achieved $840 million so far of total savings. This company yields a 3.2% dividend yield. That's a nice chunk of change for a pretty stable company, only trading at 16, 16 and a half times forward earnings. It's not going to knock the cover off the ball. It's not a high tech company, but it's a nice stable company that you could feel comfortable owning. Multiple reports this week that Netflix may be sizing up Roku as an acquisition target. Part of the thinking being that Roku's ad platform could help Netflix as it prepares to offer an ad-supported plan. Emily, Netflix has said they don't want to build their own ad platform, so I, I assumed that they would just partner with someone rather than look to make a big acquisition. Um, you're a Roku shareholder. How do you feel about this report? Well, didn't we all assume that? And I can sum up my feelings with a quick sentence, which is, this is a good deal for Netflix, but a very bad deal for Roku. And as a Roku shareholder, um, if this were to move forward, which I don't think it will, even if these rumors are substantiated, um, I would be very disappointed with Roku, uh, in part because I think Roku's best days are likely still ahead of it. And I think the interest from Netflix would be a very big testament to the power of Roku's CTV ad tech. 
tech, which is what Netflix would be after in making this acquisition. You could argue that they'd also be interested in using something like the Roku channel to uh, tease potential Netflix shows, maybe an episode or two, to drive somebody to get a premium Netflix subscription. But given how saturated they are in terms of the subscription market for Netflix, this is all about driving uh, free cash flow, which they've uh, typically hemorrhaged in the past. Roku sizes up pretty generous free cash flow. So that could be an addition for Netflix. But again, Roku, the reason why it's so attractive to me as a shareholder is not just an interesting founder-led business, but it's uh, it's agnostic to the streaming platforms that it hosts. And uh, investment um, or an acquisition by a business like Netflix would take away a lot of the attractiveness of Roku. Emily, I don't mean to put you on the spot, but from a Netflix shareholder perspective, shares are 700. We're now at 185. Does it interest you at that price? I would actually really be excited if I was a Netflix shareholder. Again, like I said, this is a free cash flow positive business. So keeping things just as they are, this would give you some free cash flow that Netflix could play around with. It'd give them access to the single largest streaming platform in the United States. So a lot of good things out of this for Netflix. Again, I doubt it gets anywhere though. Earlier this week, Amazon split their stock 20 for 1, and Shopify shareholders approved a 10 for 1 split uh, as Alphabet prepares for their own 20 for 1 stock split in July. It begs the question, Ron, should more companies be considering this? Like, Is there a downside to splitting the stock? I know we say all the time, like, oh, the stock split doesn't really matter. The pizza is the same size, whether you cut it in four slices or eight. But it, I don't know. It seems like there is actual upside to splitting your stock. It does appear that way, which makes you scratch your head a little bit, because theoretically, as you said, there shouldn't be a change. The market cap remains the same. The amount of you own in dollar terms stays the same. But there is no real downside. And there does appear to be at least a few things we can point to that could be on the upside. For example, a split can increase liquidity of a company. Now, for a stock like Amazon, it was plenty liquid in the first place. So it doesn't have an impact there. But it could for some smaller companies. It can also make it easier to distribute shares to employees. For Amazon, as an example, when it was trading at $2,200 a share, that would have had to been a minimum grant to an employee. That's a big number. Um, so now they can grant somebody shares at $110. Um, so it, it makes equity available to a wider group of employees. Also, a lower stock price can make you eligible for inclusion in an index, specifically the Dow Jones Industrial Average. Uh, being in that index creates demand for the stock as ETF. ETFs, exchange-traded funds that track the index, go in to buy shares because they must buy shares to continue to track that index. So there are some things that can create demand for a stock or make a split attractive, and there's very little downside, as I can see. Ron Gross, Emily Flippin, we will see you later on in the show. Up next, Matt Argersinger's got the latest on housing, real estate, and a lot more. So stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. I'm Chris Hill. Time to check in on the real estate market with Matt Argusinger. He is the lead investor for Million Acres, the Motley Fool's real estate investing service. He joins me now. 
from his home in Virginia. Natty, thanks for being here. Hey, thanks for having me, Chris. Uh, let's start with residential housing. Uh, where are we now? Because it kind of seems like in certain parts of the country, we're, we're actually seeing prices drop. We're seeing people who are selling their homes drop their prices a little bit. Is that depending on the region or are you seeing a trend here? No, I think it's a, a trend. And I, I'm you're talking to a guy who's in the middle of trying to sell one of his rental properties in D.C., and uh, you know it's pretty slow. It's pretty slow, Chris. We haven't we haven't cut our price yet, but I'm I'm seeing that in not only the D.C. area, but I'm I'm seeing it across the board. I think I saw some data the other day that something like five percent of new listings on Zillow over the past month have seen price drops of at least uh, you know five to ten percent. That's that's big. I mean, we haven't seen something like that in in years. Certainly not in this housing cycle. And I think it has a lot to do with with rising mortgage rates, the fact that home prices have appreciated so much so that the point where your your average home buyer is now looking at a you know monthly payment that's anywhere from 20 to 30% higher than where it was just a year ago. And that's that's kind of sticker shock. I mean, we have sticker shock a lot with this economy at the gas pump, at the grocery store, but certainly in the housing market we're seeing it too. And I think buyers it's not so much I've talked to a few brokers and it's not so much that there's less demand for housing. It's really just Hey, I want to step back. I don't. I don't have that FOMO that I had several months ago, where I I have to buy a house, or I'm never going to buy one. It's kind of like you know, I'm going to step back. I'm going to see how these interest rates sell out. See what. See if these price drops keep coming through, and then decide what to do in terms of the of what of buying a house. And I think that's just what it is. It's it's a lot of buyers are cautious out there. They recognize that maybe the market's tipped in their favor a little bit, and so they can afford to be a little cautious. You and I have talked previously about really what happened with the home building companies in the wake of the Great Recession and how if they were overbuilding before 2008, they course corrected and, and maybe even possibly overcorrected that to the point where a, we're just building a lot fewer new homes as a nation than we were, let's call it 14, 15 years ago. Um, does this cooling off of home prices, if this continues for a few months, maybe even for the rest of the year, does this, if you're a home building company, are you happy about this? Does it like, I'm assuming there's some sort of happy medium where there's demand, but there's not so much demand that they're not able to keep up with things. And of course, you know, you look at things like the cost of lumber, the cost of raw materials, obviously that factors into it as well. Right. The scars from the financial crisis of 12, 13 years ago run deep for a lot of home builders. They did overbuild in that period. And I think you're right. I think they overcorrected over the last 10 or so years and they underbuilt. And that was because they were concerned about running into those same issues that they had back in the prior housing recession. They were a lot more cautious about how they where they bought land and how they held that land. And a lot of the home builders I follow these days, you know, it's it's not so much that they're in a position of of worry. I mean, I, I think they know the demand is there. I think they just they're in a position to just protect their margins, and that's that's what they've been doing. You know, they've they've slowly worked through their backlog. They're trying to optimize for what they're seeing in the construction markets and the input markets, labor costs, and they're making the decisions cautiously about where to actually build the house and how far to get into their backlog. They they're accepting a little less bookings these days. Uh, 
I look at the home building market, home building industry, and I see uh, a lot of very cheap stocks, uh, to be frank, but also a situation where they're probably not going to be able to grow as fast as you'd like to see, given the demand that there is in the housing market because of all the other pressures on the supply side. So for them, I think it's a, it's a muddle through period. And I think as an investor, you can look at that and see probably see some opportunities if you're willing to take a little bit of a longer term view. Uh, but I almost think that the, the home builders are in a position of, of strength because they can choose to, to move a little cautiously, uh, again, protect those margins, not jump in where there might be issues with costs. And, and that's what they're doing. Do you think as a group, the home building companies and therefore the home building stocks, do you think these are better run companies than they were 15 years ago? And and maybe I shouldn't say better run. I'm, I'm, I'm not looking to call out any CEOs or leadership or anything like that. I guess I'm just wondering if they are more efficiently run and they are run in a smarter way. And the, and the comparison that leaps to mind for me is the airline industry. Uh, that for anyone who has gotten on an airplane in the last six to 12 months, uh, good luck finding an empty seat. You know, the, the airlines seem like as a group, they are just better in terms of their capacity and how many routes they're running. They're, they're willing to sort of annoy customers a little bit by bumping them off a flight because what they don't want is flights that are nearly empty. So I'm wondering if that applies to the home builders as well. Uh, absolutely. Again, I think there are a lot of lessons learned in the, in the prior crisis and, I don't know, Chris, if you've tried to refinance a home or, or buy a home, uh, get a mortgage in the last, say, seven or eight, 10 years, it's really hard. And I think a lot of home builders are applying that same kind of strenuous credit test to the, to the, you know, to the buyers of their homes. And, and that, in a way, has forced them to be a lot more cautious about the people they're selling homes for, where they're building homes. You have a lot of home builders nowadays that instead of buying huge tracts of land like they used to do in the past, anticipating demand, they're, they're buying option contracts on land or they're just buying land in places and they know where they already have a lot of demand, signing those contracts. You know, again, it's all about caution. And in a way, I think the homebuilders have probably been too cautious. I think they probably re- regret being that way and not taking as much advantage of this prior housing boom over the last few years that they could have. But I think right now they're saying to themselves, hey, we're actually in a good spot here. We didn't over leverage ourselves, overextend ourselves like we did in the prior crisis. So coming out of this, we're going to be in okay shape, even if we didn't take advantage as much advantage of the prior boom that we could have. There is increasing speculation in all corners of the financial media about the prospects of a recession in the United States. I'm not asking you uh, to look into your crystal ball and make a prediction about whether or not that's going to happen. What I am going to ask you is, does history give us any guide as to what a recession means for the real estate industry, the housing industry, particularly on the residential side? I feel like every recession is different. <laughs> and the way housing responds to it, you know, if, if, if I think way back, of course, I wasn't a, a conscious investor back in the day, but I remember in the late 80s, early 90s, you had the savings and loan crisis, which in part was a, a little bit of a real estate recession. And it took a lot of years for real estate to recover from that recession. You didn't see that so much during the dot-com crash, that kind of recession. Uh, you certainly saw it in the 0708 financial crisis, which, which in a way, real estate played a huge part of that. It took a lot of years to kind of come out of that one. This one, I'm not so sure. I, I think if we are entering a recession, I don't think the housing market is one of those areas of the market that's going to be hit too hard. I mean, I, I, again, there is that humongous demand supply imbalance that is still there. And even though even though the housing prices have risen, interest rates are higher, 
there are millions of, of people who would rather own a house than be renting or living with their parents or whatever they might be doing at the moment. And I think that demand is not going to go away. It's very, it's very demographically driven. And so I don't expect whatever, if we do hit a recession, whatever that looks like, I think it's other factors in the, that are going to be hit harder than the housing market in this particular time. Stepping back from housing and real estate, you've been investing for a long time, maybe not since the late 80s, but you've been, been investing <laughs> for a long time. Um, when you look at the market, when you particularly the, the year that we have had, all the talk around interest rates, um, growth stocks taking a really big hit, particularly over the last six months, um, what is your thought about the current state of the market and what investors um, might be looking at over the next six to 12 months? I think it's going to be tough, Chris. And I am not, I'm, I'm an optimist. I mean, I, I wouldn't be an investor if I, if I wasn't. Uh, but I, I do think investors are facing something. You and I are facing something as investors that we haven't faced in our entire lifetime, which is a situation where the economy is, is in, you know, decent shape, but could be heading to recession. Inflation is as high as in 40 years. And you have a Federal Reserve that for the first time, and I think 40 years, is not there to kind of say, hey, we're going to be here if things get really tough. If the, if the economy turns down, if asset prices decline further, they've always been there. If you think the last several recessions, several crises that we've been through, they don't have the ability, they don't have the levers to pull that they've, they've had in the past. And I think that presents a little bit of an interesting scenario for investors. I'm not saying things are going to fall off the table here, but I mean, the Fed hasn't really even begun its its tightening, its reduction in its bond for- portfolio. I think that starts within days. We haven't even had that. We've had a, a Fed that's sort of choreographed what it wants to do with the market, with credit markets, and to bring inflation down. But we, we're not in it yet. And, and, and I feel like the, as much as the market has anticipated things by driving valuations down across the board, I mean, and it's not just tech, technology stocks. I've seen real estate stocks get hit. I've seen financial stocks get hit, retail. but I don't know if we've actually been through the worst of it yet. And, and, and so I, I think if you're an investor out there, if you, if you think now there are bargains out there, well, maybe think about being a little more patient. Uh, I'm not saying we're heading to, into some abyss, but I do think it's possible that asset prices get even lower and there might be even more opportunities uh, for the patient investor. Yeah, last thing before I let you go, uh, earlier in the week, someone uh, posted a poll on Twitter, um, kind of an interesting thought exercise. Uh, for stock investors, and it was about alternative asset classes. And, and the poll was simply like, wh- which one would you rather invest in? And it was sort of an esoteric group of choices for alternative asset classes. It was things like luxury watches and art and wine and that sort of thing. And I don't know if you voted in the poll, but I saw you responded to the poll <laughs> and you just wrote vintage comic books. <laughs> Which I love as an answer, but it also reminded me, um, as someone who follows you on Twitter, um, most of your Twitter game is about investing and real estate and housing. Uh, But every once in a while, you post a picture of a vintage comic book that I assume you own. Um, Right. And we've known each other a long time. And every time I I see that, I think to myself, I need to ask Matt about that because I don't think we've ever talked about this. Um, (laughs) So I'll just use the show as an opportunity to ask, how long have you been interested in this? And do you actually look at vintage comic books 
Uh, is that something you do for enjoyment or is that something that you actually think of as an alternative investment that if someone came along and offered you the right price, you would part ways with uh, some of your collection? Yeah, well, I, uh, that's a great question. I mean, I've I, so I've been collecting comic books since I was uh, probably ten years old, <laughs> a long time, and it didn't occur to me that they were a real asset class until I, you know, maybe it was ten years ago. I kind of looked in, and studied the the price history of of comic books, and it's it's extraordinary, Chris. If you if you really look at the data and see the growth in in some of the issues uh, out there, and of course. You got to remember, we've also had the rise of Marvel Studios over the last ten years. Movies that have propelled a lot of these characters into the limelight. I mean, when just as an example, when I was growing up, characters like the Avengers and Iron Man and Doctor Strange, those were some of the lamest characters <laughs> in the comic book <laughs> universe, right? But today, everyone loves those characters, right? And so, what you've seen is the original, some of the older issues of those comic books, say from the '60s, '70s, '80s, even have soared in value as people have come to recognize the these characters as, as pop culture icons in a way. And so I, I look, I, I, yeah, I, I enjoy comic books. I used to read them. I don't read them as much these days. I'm more of a collector, but if you look at comic books from the sixties and seventies earlier, if you, if you're very wealthy, they present some very interesting opportunities. They're rare. I mean, you can write, you know, first appearance issues of major characters in good condition are very rare. And so, you know, the values, if you go to places like Heritage Auctions or eBay, and I mean, you can see books that were probably $100 10 years ago. Now they're well into the thousands of dollars. And I think investors are just discovering this asset class. And um, I, who knows, maybe it's a bubble and I'm just, uh, you know, I'm getting swept in up myself, but I, I think there, there are a lot of opportunities. If you want to read more from Matt Argusinger and his team, you can go to millionacres.com. And if you want to get the occasional uh, vintage comic book image, uh, follow him on Twitter. Matty, thanks so much for being here. All right. Thanks, Chris. Up next, Emily Flippin and Ron Gross return with a couple of stocks on their radar. Stay right here. You're listening to Motley Fool Money. Just can't dig the Okie from a Skokie. Captain will help anyone, a friend or a stranger. I've got 90,000 pounds in my pajamas. I've got 40,000 French francs in my fridge. I've got lots of lovely lira now, the Deutschmark's getting dearer, and my dollar bills would buy the Brooklyn Bridge. There is nothing quite as wonderful as money. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. Welcome back to Motley Fool Money. Chris Hill here once again with Emily Flippin and Ron Gross. You can hear this show every weekend on radio stations across America, and if you radio folks want even more, you can listen and follow to The Motley Fool Money podcast seven days a week on your favorite podcast platform. Apple, Spotify, Stitcher, iHeart, Amazon Music, wherever you get your podcasts, please listen and follow Motley Fool Money. And while you're there, check out David Gardner's Rule Breaker Investing Podcast as well. 
Time to get to the stocks on our radar. Our man behind the glass, Steve Broido, is going to hit you with a question. Emily Flippin, you're up first. What are you looking at this week? I'm looking at Beely Beely this week. The ticker is B-I-L-I. You've probably heard me talk about this company before. They're a Chinese video streaming service. You can kind of imagine it as a mix between a business like YouTube as well as a premium streaming service. But they dropped this week after earnings, although the stock is now naturally flat. Uh, Despite revenue growing 30%, daily average users growing 32%, losses were greater than expected in part due to the lockdowns across the country. The reason why on my radar is because I actually think this is a solid business that if you can see through the dark clouds in front of it, is probably a long-term stock to hold. Uh, The average time spent by daily active users on the site was 95 minutes per day. That's the highest in Bilibili's history. The number of paying users and the ratio of paying users to active users is also the highest they've ever been. Uh, They're working on reducing losses, um, sales and marketing decreasing 30% quarter over quarter. So I think this business is going to be rapidly approaching some sort of adjusted profitability, and it's probably one investors should keep on their radar. Steve, question about Beely Beely? Sure. When you're dealing with a, uh, a, a company in a country like China, how do you know that all these numbers that they're throwing out there are accurate? Um, they certainly aren't <laughs> part question. of the, you know, the U.S. system. Well, a track record does help, and Bilibili does have a decent track record of reporting what seems to be effective numbers, right? But you never really know. They are audited by PwC, so they're audited by you know international auditors, but fraud obviously can happen anywhere, but especially in China, there's no independent auditing, so you are taking it with an um, you know, element of faith and a grain of salt. Ron Gross, what's on your radar this week? A stock that I bought earlier this year at higher prices, of course, is Airbnb. ABNB is the ticker. Considering adding to my, to my position at these prices, obviously they operate an online vacation and travel renting lodging platform, operate in more than 220 countries around the world at this point. In the most recent quarter, reported over 102 million nights and experiences booked that surpasses pre-pandemic levels, represents a 59% year-over-year increase, generated $1.2 billion in free cash flow. They continue to innovate. They recently rolled out what they're calling the biggest change in a decade. The update includes new ways for guests to search on Airbnb by category to find places that maybe they wouldn't have been able to find otherwise. They do have about $2 billion in debt. That seems to be okay here, but that's definitely something we should keep an eye on. And we also have to keep an eye on the big boys like Marriott stepping into the space and seeing what that will do. They That will have to do to the market share of Airbnb. But I like it here. Steve, question about Airbnb? So with fuel prices being what they are, um, and knowing that a lot of people that go to an Airbnb are driving there, um, does that hit them, clip their wings a little bit? It would have to. Anytime people get in the car and costs are um, higher than normal, they would maybe stay another night or even put off a potential trip. So that's something to, to consider for sure. What do you want to add to your watch list, Steve? I think I'm going Airbnb. Woo-hoo. Ron Gross, Emily Fliffin, thanks so much for being here. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, Chris. That's going to do it for this week's Motley Fool Money Radio Show. The show is mixed by Steve Broido. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. 